Welcome to The Tell with Christine Axmith. We discuss uh, cults and resisting coercive persuasion. Today we have a guest, Christopher Shelton. He has the podcast and YouTube channel, Sensibly Speaking, where he interviews luminaries in the field of cults and how cults operate how to spot them, what the consequences are, and healing from the cult experience. So this is my interview with Chris. I want to thank him so much for uh, giving us his time. But more than that, thank all of you for listening. Bye. I'm going to introduce myself because, you know, I'm the veritable unknown. I, um, I've been reading about this sort of coercive control really since 2015, 2016 in all different areas to include Hannah Arendt, um, Power of the Powerless, just, you know, the political, but also the cult angle. I've been sort of following Scientology for years. So one person I followed on Twitter was Bandy Lee. And um, I kept harassing her right? Saying, look, you're not doing any prevention. And so finally, one of her friends are like, that's not her role. You do it. And I'm like, but I'm a nobody. So I've been doing it. You there know, you because I, th- I think there's a need in this space for prevention. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And what do you mean by prevention? Just so I make sure I'm on the same page as what you're saying. Well, so that we... Um, people can have the tools that they need to prevent having to fall into these tar pits, so to speak. Sure. That, that Absolutely. um, Absolutely. recognizing yeah. when you're vulnerable, for instance, yeah. that's, yes. that's a big one at acknowledging that you're vulnerable. That's uh, that's where I'm at. And it's, it's not just the cults and conspiracies but it's the tools on an emotional level yes. that help people course correct. Yeah, exactly. So that's really where I'm at. And, and I wanted to talk today about your journey in this, in this area and what, what the progression was and then later what the critical intervention points would have or could have been or what that would have looked like. Okay. Okay, great. No problem. So, where were you in your life when you were first introduced to Scientology? Well, um, Scientology first came into my life when I was about three or four years old because my parents got involved with it. Um, They had been divorced, and my uncle got my dad involved through a communications class, and my dad was impressed by it. And this is, you know, 1973 or something. So uh, there's no internet, there's no research, there's no way to look up what Scientology is. It's, it's what you experience of it is what it is, and that's all you needed to know. And so my dad was quite impressed by the class, and then he uh, kind of dragged my mom into it, and she also was impressed, because she came from a, um, a Catholic background, and she was impressed by Scientology's seeming openness and tolerance of belief and the idea that what's true for you is what's true. 
And if it's not true for you, it's not true. So don't worry about it, you know? And that's very different from Catholic dogma. She understood it. So yeah. uh, they thought they were getting involved in something really great for themselves and uh, didn't turn out to be that way. Wow. It started, I, I didn't know you were like a toddler. Second generation, yeah, that's what we, we actually, we have a label for it in academia. We call it the second gen, second generation members, SGAs. You know, that term kind of applies to any multi-generational though. So it's, you know, because you have third, fourth, fifth generation cult members. And, um, and that's the term we use for that. And I am a second generation member. So nobody, and it's a different set of psychological principles involved in some ways in terms of how the how you get involved in the group and how you get out of the group because you were never really asked as a second generation member yeah. whether you wanted to be part of it or not. Yeah. It's just assumed this is the truth and this is the way it is and, and here's how you were brought up. And there isn't any other way to think about it. And it's no different than people raised in Christian or Islamic households, they just never question it until they start developing some critical thinking skills later on in life and start wondering maybe, hey, what, what's maybe this isn't everything it's cracked up to be. But as a child, you don't really have those tools available to you. And, yeah. and so you don't question much, at least I didn't. Having said that, at what point did it escalate? Because I'm sure there are second gen people that weren't as involved as yourself. I understand you were very involved. And yeah. that's, you know, because I've been listening to you for quite some time, that you were really involved. And so was there a, a progression for that? I Absolutely. mean, was it, yeah, was it did it involve your parents, though, putting you on the Sea Org track? Uh, yes and no. As far as my path goes in the acceleration process, when I was a teenager, I was about 15 years old, and my dad one day approached me and said, it was summer break between uh, my uh, sophomore and junior years of high school, and my dad said, why don't you go check it out for yourself? And we were about an hour away from the local Church of Scientology in Santa Barbara, California, uh, from where we were living at the time. And so I went down with um, a friend and uh, who had already been started taking classes there, and I, and I did the personality test. And this was the first time that I had ever actually been in an official Scientology organization of this level. It was a it was a city level church. I had been my parents had been involved with Scientology at a in Pasadena at a sort of a lower organization level, and so uh, I went in and did the same thing everybody does. I did the personality test, and they sat me down and told me all about myself, and I couldn't believe that the insight that they had into you know, the fact that I was this 15-year-old boy who had a hard time getting dates. I mean, probably literally the most obvious thing about me, but I, I, I was blown away by how insightful they were, right? Because they were talking to me openly and honestly about this and said, well, look, we've got classes and courses and work you can do that, that will change that, that will handle that situation. So you okay, won't have and, that problem. And then that would be the promise yeah they're like you listen what do they want and then you promise you have the solution bingo but it's a no-win situation because it's always your fault if it fails well there is that aspect i mean that's the formula yeah yeah 
and that and it wasn't obvious or clear at that point of course not you were 15 yeah it's obvious how could it be obvious exactly but um but no that's exactly the situation is that i did their communications class and in fact i did a very high level communications class and i then proceeded to do another set of courses in scientology i actually signed up for a package deal and um and because my parents had been involved for so many years it wasn't as outrageous as it might seem that at 15 years old uh going in for my very first scientology formalized experiences i've been around it for years but this was actual formal right now you're gonna do it um it was 900 bucks for these three classes and i borrowed the money from my parents and i paid for them and i did it and uh and so i did that communications class i did a study class and i did a kind of a survey of scientology class called the hubbard qualified scientologist course and this sort of introduced me to all the basics of Scientology, really kind of bang, bang, bang. And that was in the summer of 1985. So I, I have a further question. It's, um, did you notice a difference in your life after the initial classes? Yes. I felt more self-confident and I exuded that and people noticed. Um, I started dressing a little better. Um, I had been a bit nerdy and a bit um, kind of socially awkward and I was still socially awkward, but I was more bold about it. <laughs> and I was, right. a bit more, I was a bit more willing to talk to people and look them in the eye and say something to them and not be afraid of what I might hear back. Right. Um, to that degree, the communications class, which was mainly what, what put that there for me, um, was something that was useful and helpful to me. However, it was really only, you know, years later that I came to realize, and looking back at that time period, that while my ego had been pumped a bit and I was a bit more self-assertive, I was still socially awkward and I was still sometimes socially inappropriate and I felt that you know, what I had learned in Scientology is that intention alone is the way that you go about making people or things happen, is that you intend it to happen and then it happens. And so I was trying to practice this by, you know, intending things. And sometimes that rubbed people the wrong way because you come across a little arrogant or a little egotistical or a little haughty, right? And and I didn't really see it that way because I was framing it that way. I was framing it as though I was being this, you know, more confident, self-assertive person. So I still wasn't getting any dates. <laughs> you know, didn't really handle that situation that they promised to handle. Right. But I was so happy with, you know, how I was seeing myself. I was so kind of self-pumped on all this knowledge and skill that I had that I really wasn't seeing that I was producing some negative results around me trying to use this stuff. And so I wasn't really succeeding the way I wanted to, but it's amazing how you can tell yourself yeah. whatever you want to hear, you know, and that's kind of what I was doing as a teenager during those years. I would imagine um, as a teenager, and taking on this uh, really adult level Scientology would kind of make you feel like a grown up. Yes. 
in, yes, in especially since considering all these grown-ups who were at the church were talking to me as though I were a fellow adult and were treating me as though I was this very mature, you know, uh, enlightened being. I, very different from how you're treated in high school. You know, yes. I, I, I was bullied. I was yeah. treated like... Well, like I think everybody player. was bullied at some point but, in high school. I were. mean, everybody was. What about the family dynamic? See, that would also... Did it improve your status within your family? Um, you know, it's I, like a like a young a Catholic boy saying, "I want to be a priest." Like you know that it bumps up your status in the family. Uh, to a degree, it did. Um, you know, my parents weren't judgmental in the way that they were going to love me no matter what I did, and that that really wasn't an issue. But. It did make my dad happier that I was doing Scientology, and it seemed to make my mom happier as well. Um, but it wasn't like a total night and day kind of difference or something. Right. And, and interestingly, they had worked for the church in the 1970s at, this, at the mission level, at the, at the organization they had been part of in Pasadena. And they had had kind of some negative experiences with that, even though they still thought Scientology as a subject and topic was completely valid and 100% what I should be doing. When the org staff, when the church in Santa Barbara, after a couple of years, when I was 17 and graduated high school, they started coming down really hard on me to recruit me to, to start working at the church. And my parents were not actually down with that. They did not want me to do that. Um, but it was my first act of like real rebellion against my parents that I was like, oh, you don't want me to? Well, you know, all these other adults down there do, and they're telling me how awesome and amazing and wonderful I am for even considering working there. And you guys are telling me I shouldn't. So I know which way I want to go. Right. And that was, that's, it actually worked Their Their resistance worked against them in this, in this case, because I was, you know, being a rebellious teen at this point. So. What I find interesting about that is, one, your parents hit a no point, like a point of saying, no, out of here. Yep. Um, and that in cults, that happens. And I'm, yes. I'm curious, like, what, how does that happen for some and not for others? Or what are the circumstances where it happens for some and not the others? There's this movie star who was raised in a cult, and then the leader came up with something really, I'm not even gonna say it, bad, and the father, we're out. And, but there are people who didn't tap out. And so, what, what do you think? Because I know you're studying this academically. Am I, am I right about that? Uh, no, absolutely, I, yes. And, I, and what, what do you think? What creates the no point? Well, it's usually a series of things that happen rather than one big thing, although there are always, you know, exceptions to that. It, what, what the description I use for this is to say what has to happen is an unforgivable moral transgression. An unforgivable and undeniable moral transgression has to occur. And I mean on the part of the organization or the oh, cult, cult yeah. leader. Right, right. right, Like they have to do something to you or do something to somebody else that you know and love and care about that is unforgivable and undeniable. Right. And, and when a, that or a series of such things happen, 
a person will be sh be shocked. They will what? what? I, I didn't. I never imagined that could happen, and yet here it is happening, and it's and it's a very real thing. Uh, they are they are being asked, for example, by the cult to disconnect from their family. You have to shun your mom now. You have to kick out your grandma. You have to quit your job. You have to give us you know, this X amount of money by X time, or there are gonna be all these horrible consequences. You have to have sex with me as the cult leader. I mean, there's any number of things that could create an unforgivable moral transgression. It, it, it's really very individual to each person based on their moral foundations. And so, so that's why you see some people can be pushed one way and respond by leaving or escaping, waking up. Other people get pushed the same way and they don't because for them, it's not the same level of moral transgression as it is for, you know, for Bill as it is for Joe. So that's the differences you see between people, but, but categorically, I think it has to do with those moral transgressions. It reminds me of branding the Nexium cult, that when mm. it went public that followers were branded, then all these people backed out. Correct. But... Because yes. there's a public shame there. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's... Uh, and it was already bad. They were already on the fence with the branding. They were already like, what have I done, right? This is crazy. So many of those women were having such, you know, uh, buyer's remorse, I guess you could say. So, no, I just want to pause. You think they had buyer's remorse after the branding? I believe they did. I don't think very, I mean, based on the, the testimonials of the women who did go through that process, they were shocked, they were appalled, they could not believe what had, what had happened to them. But there's a shame and there was a blackmail factor there. Right. They've already given over information, pictures, uh, promises of a, of a blackmail kind of nature, right? Of a very compromising nature. And so there was a steady progression. It didn't just go one day, they no. walked in the room right. and got branded. Right, right. But there were a lot of loyalty tests and gates they had to walk through before they got to that point. And that sometimes, you know, was the catalyst, was the, the branding process or ceremony itself was like, what? You know, Sarah Edmonds talks about that in detail, and um, that was that's that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about, where you have this moral transgression occur. There are people. Horrible things have happened as the result of totalism, and coercive control. How would one go about, I guess this is the fundamental question, how do you go about reaching people to remind them? Because in Nexium, the leader made this comment about babies and nobody got up and left. So obviously that wasn't the moral crisis for the people there, but prior to interacting with that totalist system or that cult, they, um, they had that value. So well, what causes someone to lose track of, like, to let go of a fundamental value? So that's what I want to know, because they had to have 
let go of some some of them. I mean, they, with some of the horrible things that have happened, they all couldn't have not had that as a fundamental value. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Like, yeah. how would you go about reaching someone, reminding them of the fundamental values? I mean, is there a way? Well, yeah, it's it, it very much depends on the individual involved, right? You have to talk to the person in front of you. There is no set pat series of questions or, right, or, right. or statements or something you can make universally that will wake somebody up, if only that were true, right? right? It would right. make our jobs a lot easier. So what you're dealing with are individuals. And, and it's interesting because you bring up these fundamental values, and that's actually what it all hinges on, is people have concepts when i talk about moral transgressions i'm talking about very very powerful and very very fundamental thinking processes that everybody engages in that it's their concepts of right and wrong but is it also identity well like well, their yeah. identity is based on these concepts particular concepts their identity is based on particular concepts please i'm sorry i interrupted. yes that's exactly right right how, how do you define yourself uh, how do you think about yourself? What, who are you? Um, we would tend to answer these questions in terms of our values, what we think is good and bad, right and wrong. And that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about moral transgressions, is violations of these essential ideas of what's right and wrong and good and bad. These are, these are the, the, probably the most powerful influencers that, that exist in our heads. People can reframe or re-look at or re-believe, they can believe anything if you give them a good enough reason to. So a person can believe, can, be, can become twisted to believe that putting a child, a four years old, in the chain locker of a boat where the chain is, where he could potentially die any moment because that chain could kill him, you know, the anchor chain. Right, right, right. right. Hubbard, Hubbard would throw kids into the chain locker of the boats that they sailed around in back in the early 1970s. And this, and, and there were people on that ship who knew that he was doing that and reframed it in their mind that that was a good thing to do. The value doesn't change. Your perception of what is good and bad, right and wrong, is what is what kind of changes, if that makes sense. Yeah. Right? You still think you're doing good. And and that this child needs this. That this this is a disciplinary action. This is an this is necessary for the child's survival somehow, even though it's literally threatening his life, right? So that's the delusionary aspect of our perceptions that can mess with all of this. And so getting to your question, um, what you have to do is get the person to kind of see that they're framing this wrong, <laughs> right? Against their values, right? They want the child to live a good long life and succeed. And they think throwing them in a chain locker is the way to do it. And you got to go, hey, man, no, no, no. Look, you're threatening his life, right? This, this child could die in there. Oh, I hadn't really thought about that. Really? Is that yeah. what their response would be? Oh, I hadn't really thought of that? Or would the response be more like, yes, but on the whole, it's better? Well, their, their response could be any of a million things. Okay. But the point is to, you have to get the person to see the situation themselves, I guess is where I'm trying to go here. 
you can't you can't lay your perception your truth your idea of the thing on them and expect them to just get it you have to get them to see it so it's a little bit of a sales job i guess i i that's a well, really it really way. is it's fundamental I, persuasion and when i uh done research i listened to hours of this and yeah. people talk about talking to QAnon, and we'll talk about QAnon yeah. in a minute, that they say the same thing. Or right-wing or left-wing crazies, I believe they're on both sides. Mm -hmm. It just depends which one's more dangerous at any given moment. But um, you need to talk to them one-on-one -on -one and mm -hmm. understand them, that there is, like you said, no mass deprogramming but to connect with them and even um, in the Socratic method, just keep asking questions about their belief so that they have to bring, I guess, to the conscious level what the thinking really is and exactly. then justify it. Exactly. So it is a one-on-one -on -one thing. It is. It's, um, it is not a thing where you're going to be able to do this to a group of people at a shot because the the group collective belief is too strong and it, and it just, it's like a shield. It just bounces everything you say. Yeah. So, so yeah, so individually, and as you mentioned, a very good point there, uh, Socratic method, right? Yeah. Asking questions is far, far, far more powerful a technique than telling people things. Yeah. There are pieces of information you are going to have to impart to a person while you're doing a deconstruction or a deprogramming or whatever you want to call it, you know, an intervention, uh, an extraction, you, there's, there's lots of words you could use for what you're trying to do. But it, at the end of the day, it comes down to a conversation. And in that, because it's, because it's, we, we're no longer in the 1980s where they were kidnapping yeah. and throwing them in a van and, you know, forcing them to, to isolating them in a hotel room and, you know, beating on them and stuff. That's, all of that is just as barbaric as what the cults do, and it doesn't work. What you want to do is have a conversation with the person. They have to be willing. They have to be willing to listen to you and interact and talk with you openly and hopefully in a trustworthy sort of environment, in a, in a calm setting. You, you're never going to get anywhere with somebody yelling and screaming and antagonizing them. That's for sure, right? That never works. But you've got to get a person in a willing headspace to be able to receive some information. And mostly that's accomplished by asking them questions. Questions engage the brain in a way that statements don't. You, you know, when you're trying to throw facts at somebody, they can get very defensive. But when you're interrogating them, they have to think about and respond to your questions. And then it, it requires a bit more deeper thinking. They will still, at the beginning of the conversation, if you're if you're kind of getting through to them, they will throw out thought-stopping cliches. Yeah, yeah, I hate cliches. Yes. You know, I'm um, I'm in uh, recovery. You know, I know you did a little thing about recovery, um, mm -hmm. and I just celebrated 32 years, and they've got these cliches, and I despise them. So I always raise my hand and say, I think these are garbage, and because they are garbage. You know, it, it, I'm sorry, this is like heresy, but I mean, this is, oh, your free meeting will end in 10 minutes. Well, okay. But um, it is, it's just chanting. And although the ritualistic chanting has a comfort, 
and if it keeps you from using in the next 10 minutes, that's valuable. But um, I'm totally anti-cliche. I'm sorry. That's, yeah. that's my opinion. So I agree. They are thought-stopping. Sometimes your thoughts yeah. need to be stopped, but this is not a, a long-term strategy. So we have, according, well, they always give me extra time, these Zoom things, but we have 10 minutes. So let's start with your process of disengaging from Scientology thing. Like, what was the first? What was the second? What was the third? Like, you okay. know, because it was, what was your, what was your step-by-step -step climb out? Sure. Um, for me, the first big step was 10 years prior to me leaving, where I encountered a situation of, again, a moral transgression, right? A situation where I was sent to do a project. This is at, at this point, this was the, um, I think it was early 2000s or something, and I had been sent down on a project to San Diego at the church there. And this was when I was working for the Sea Organization. So I was all in at this point. I was, right. that's the billion year contract. I was dedicated for my entire life to doing Scientology at this point. And I went down on this project and I was um, down there for about three or four weeks. And during the course of this project, we pulled off a great many successes. It was a very successful project. And when I came back to Los Angeles, home base, where I'd been living and working, I was treated as a second-class citizen and the actions and work that I had done were not validated or treated as important in any way. And that really upset me. I was very, very, very upset by that because I knew I had, I had uh, uh, you know, pulled off something amazing and there was no acknowledgement for it. Right, and right. That was a big deal to me because it was not just a kind of a success. It was a major project and it was a major success. Yeah. So that was my first breakaway point because I realized that we had been engaged in, at the level that I was working at, an awful lot of busy work. And I didn't really think of it as busy work up until this project happened. And I realized that the busy work was kind of what they wanted us doing, not the, not the successful stuff. And that was very, very weird. It's, it's, it's counterintuitive. It doesn't make any sense. You like that. Who would run an organization that way? Right. A cult would. Yeah. The purpose and, is what? The amygdala hijack. Exactly. Amongst many, many other reasons. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, when you're working, working, working all the time, then you're not thinking, thinking, thinking too much. You know, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And so, so that was very much where my head was at. So that was a little bit of, a, of an initial wake-up call and a, like a, whoa, I thought we were doing X, but in fact we're doing Y. And no matter how hard I work, I'm never going to be able to accomplish X because they keep pushing Y on my head, you know, and, and, and it's no good. It's not, it's not helpful. It's not working. So, so that was a, that was the, like I said, a first uh, sort of, oh, whoa, something's wrong here. A few years later, there was another instance, a series of instances where I was basically physically and psychologically abused over an extended period of time, over a three year period. I was on this punishment program called the Rehabilitation Project. Yeah, I've heard of that. RPF. Yeah. That was rough. That was a very, 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 in fact, I'll just say, it was the worst time of my life. It was awful. It was like being in a prison camp. And I, you were, I, we were sequestered away from the rest of the crew. We couldn't talk to them unless we were talked to first. 
it was it was awful. It was there were there were so many things wrong with it, and I I, I can't uh, easily summarize all the awfulness of the RPF. But while on the RPF, I had another series of of wake up moments where I saw that the uh, Scientology's counseling methods didn't really work the way they said they did and the um there's an electronic device they use called an e-meter <laughs> i'm sorry i'm yeah, sorry no, it's it's laugh worthy it really is quite silly because we, you know i'm an am, i do amateur radio as uh, a hobby so the idea of this r meter is just absurd so you know because i all I do is play with RF creating devices all day long. And, you know, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay, fair enough. Well, the e-meter was, um, was a bit of a mystery to me, as it is to all Scientologists, because they don't get a real valid explanation of what it's all about. They get Hubbard's mythology as though that's reality. And, and they don't question it too much because it's kind of internally, it has its own internal logic to it. And it kind of makes itself make sense if you're a Scientologist. But in the in in the RPF, I saw you know enough exceptions to the rules that I was like, wait a minute, something's wrong with this. And sure enough, there is something wrong with it. There's a lot of things wrong with it. And I started getting a little glimmer of some truth there, and that was another wake-up call for me. And so I finally finished that RPF program. But I finished it in a, in a headspace where I knew something was really, really wrong with the Church of Scientology as an organization. And I didn't think that there was something necessarily really, really wrong with Scientology as a philosophy or as a subject. But I did now see very clearly this organization is doing things that are not okay. And that was that was treasonous, mutinous kind of thinking. You know, when you're in a destructive cult, they demand loyalty, and and you must you know pledge yourself to the group. And I was signed up for a billion-year contract, so there was no disloyalty allowed. So I had to suppress and and sort of not communicate these ideas that I was having. I couldn't talk about this stuff with anybody. No, I, my I life. Yeah, and that's another feature of a cult is getting between a man and a wife that's right and they very much do the the bar relationship all relationships in scientology are secondary to the good of the church so so that was a series of wake-up calls for me and then finally in 2012 i've been in for 17 years in the sea org and 25 years of working for the church at this point so i've spent you know, a quarter of a, of a century working for Scientology. And I finally came to realize uh, that it was all about the money and that, that there was just this tremendous, tremendous amount of push on money, 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 money. And, I, and again, it became this undeniable moral transgression. This right. Of, oh, I get it now kind of thing. You know, I've always said I'm a little bit of a slow learner. You know, it took me 25 years to get a twig on this. But it, but it, but it, but over those 25 years, I need to say, it did become more obvious that it was a money-making scam. And, that, right. and I really had thought for all those years that I was in, that I was, that I was contributing to a movement that was saving the world, that was making a very positive difference in the world. And finally in 2012, uh, enough evidence 
came across my eyes, you know, that was undeniable that we were not making a difference. And in fact, we were lying to our parishioners, our, our membership, right. and, and that we were voraciously bankrupting them. Yeah. And that was a moral transgression to me. I didn't yeah. sign on for money. I didn't sign on to ruin people's lives. And I, and I saw that happen enough times that I finally woke up and was like, oh my God, this is really not good. And I knew the organization had faults, but now I saw, no, there's something really wrong. There's something fundamentally flawed here. And this was still in complete ignorance of any of the truth of L. Ron Hubbard's actual life, his actual circumstances, and the truth behind how Dianetics and Scientology were evolved. I, I, I did not know any of that story yet. Um, but I had finally twigged on enough. <laughs> I, I was like, okay, I, I got to stop working here. At least I'm going to quit the job. And that's what I did. I stopped working for the church in 2012. And by 2013, I got on the internet and I started getting the full truth of the situation. And that was mind-blowing that was just I, I, there was just, just no words to describe the the levels of anger and betrayal and upset that that caused because i suddenly realized in learning all about l ron hubbard and, and his life and and the history of scientology as told not by the church and this is where we leave it our interview our interview with chris shelton uh Sadly, Zoom cut us off, so we weren't able to completely finish that thought. But I think what we've got is a lot of generous donation of time by Mr. Shelton, but in addition, just a real insight into the process by which someone steps into a cult and steps out of a cult. So this is... Christine Axsmith with the tell at christineaxsmith.substack.com and I want to thank you for being with us here today.